John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. As we come to the book of Revelation, I think it's uh, helpful every once in a while just give a quick sort of five-minute catch-up or uh, uh, perspective on where we've been. And uh, one of the things that if you've been with us for a while, you will understand that um, Barry and I, as we've been preaching, have been emphasizing the pastoral nature of this book. Um, that's the way that we have been preaching through it, that it is a book that was intended for the people of God and for the church of God to be an encouragement to them, to be an help to them. Uh, one of the ways in which it challenges and encourages the people of God is to um, be overcomers, to be victorious in the midst of all the struggles and all the difficulties that they face in this world, to be those that overcome, to be those that are victorious. And you find that again and again and again in the text of Revelation, to those who overcame. Uh, secondly, it's a book about endurance, and we've seen that a couple times in, in chapter 14 uh, and in chapter 13 where it says, here is the call for endurance. The reality is we live in a difficult world. We live in a world in which there is a war being waged and we are the objects of many of those attacks. And so it calls for endurance. Uh, and finally, it's a book that calls for perseverance. And uh, we as the people of God are, are called to continue on this narrow path, to continue to walk in the commands of God, to continue to hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's a pastoral book meant for the people of God who are living in these last days in light of heaven. It's a book that's a revelation of Christ. Uh, that's how we've been understanding. And the revelation of Christ, at least as I'm uh, understanding it, as I go through the book this time, it's a revelation of the exalted reigning Christ. And in fact, that's how the first chapter of the book starts. It gives us a vision or a picture of Christ who is exalted and who is reigning in heaven above. And through the rest of the book of Revelation, how we uh, see that book is that it reveals to us the various ways in which Christ reigns over this world, over this cosmos. The way that Christ is bringing all things into subjection under him, and then one day he will give it all back to the Father. So it's a revelation of the reign of Christ, the exalted reign of Christ, right now in our world and in our lives. It's also a revelation of the rule of God. Uh, that one of the primary images that we've been encouraging you to keep in your mind is that there is a throne. And it's not an earthly throne, it's a heavenly throne. 
Chapter 4 describes that throne room scene as, as occupied by God. And God rules over this cosmos. He rules over this universe. And one of the images that we've been um, trying to use to describe that is how the throne in heaven is the control tower of the universe. It's God directing all the traffic, all the, if you think of an airport, it's God directing all the planes, all the vehicles, all the people, all the passengers. He's directing all of that from the throne of the universe. Another image that we've been trying to implant in our minds is that there is a scroll. And the scroll is central to this book. The scroll is revealed in chapter 5. And after a time of weeping and mourning, finally one is steps forward who is able to take the scroll and break the seals on it and reveal the contents of the scroll. And in fact, fulfill the contents of the scroll. And the scroll contains all of the will of God for our world. It's an incredible revelation of God that is brought past through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we think of a, 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 a scroll, we think of a throne, we think of the Lamb. So as we think about the book, we, we have those images, those pictures in our mind. Finally, one of the things that we need to keep in mind, I think, as we uh, look at the book of Revelation, it's a book that keeps coming back on itself. It's not meant to be understood linearly, uh, sort of as everything keeps, uh, one thing follows the next thing, follows the next thing, follows the next thing. I, I think if you have that view of revolution, revelation, you'll find yourself in a bit of confusion. Rather, uh, revelation is like um, a hockey game. I've used this description a few times. And at a hockey game, you've got various camera angles. You've got a camera angle over center ice. You've got a camera angle in the nets. You've got a camera angle uh, sort of from the corner of the rinks. You've got those that walk around with handheld cameras and they interview cer certain people or they focus on certain players on the ice. It's the same game, but it's from a multitude of different perspectives. And so the book of Revelation is giving us many different perspectives on the last days. The last days, loved ones, are to be understood as the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It's the, the intervening years, and so we're already like some 2,000 years into the last days. It's a period of time that covers, as they say, the, the first coming of Christ and his resurrection and his ascension and the second coming of Christ. And so the, the seals take us through the last days. The, the trumpets take us through the last days. These seven bowls will take us through the last days. We get a picture of uh, uh, earth uh, um, uh, uh, from heaven's perspective. We get a picture of heaven from earth's perspective. So there's all these different angles that are layered on top of one another to help us understand heaven's perspective on what's happening here on earth. And it's so important that we have that perspective because without that perspective, we would be filled with fear. Without that perspective, we would only be able to, to go around by what, what, what we, we can sense and by what we can feel. It would be a physical world only. But the book of Revelation gives us the spiritual perspective on the physical world in which we live. It takes us behind the scene, so to speak. Behind what our eyes can see, what our senses can, can understand. It takes us behind that and gives us heaven's perspective on that. So that's what we're doing in the book of Revelation. When we come to chapter 15, we are now in sort of another cycle. 
we, we get a, a, a glimpse of the, the church in heaven, which we'll spend a few minutes talking about. But then he's going to introduce us to the, the final um, uh, um, uh, outpouring of the wrath of God in the seven bowls. And this section, depending on who you talk to, goes to the end of chapter 19 with the destruction of Babylon, the great whore, or it goes to the end of chapter 20 and the great white throne judgment. And so, nonetheless, we're in another section that covers the last days. And so, that's where we dive into chapter 15. There's a few things that I want you to think about as we go through chapter 15. Uh, maybe one of the primary ones is, is simply that, that John um, wants us to make connections between what God has done through Christ in our day and continues to do in our life and what God did through the people of Israel in the first exodus. There's a connection between the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt and the exodus of all of the church out of sin into the glorious kingdom of God. The first exodus was accomplished through the lamb that was uh, slaughtered and the blood that was put over the lintels and then the crossing through of the Red Sea and coming out on the other side and Egypt, uh, the Egyptians being destroyed. The second exodus is accomplished through the life and the death and then the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which through his blood we go from death to life. And so John is mixing those two images. He wants us to see what Christ has done through us through the lens from time to time of what happened in Egypt. There's three things that I want us to think about. And whether they'll make sense to you or not, I hope they do. They make sense to me. Uh, the first is simply the sights, smells, and sounds of heaven. There's a great deal that's, that's just dropped in our lap, so to speak, in Revelation 15 about heaven. Uh, the second is the sanctuary or the temple in heaven. There's some things that John describes about the temple that's in heaven, the sanctuary in heaven. And the third is simply about God. Some things that John says about God in these particular verses. So the sights, sounds, and smells of heaven. I don't know if you think about heaven very much. And if you do think about heaven, I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. Like, what is it that informs your thinking about heaven? Is it books that you read about people who supposedly have died and gone to heaven and come back? Is your own imagination of things that you would like to be in heaven that you hope are in heaven or things that you hope are not there? Or is your um, understanding of heaven fueled by the word of God? By the description that we find in the word of God about heaven? Is your description of heaven in your view of heaven uh, a place where we sit around on white fluffy clouds and we float around in sort of this, this, this place of tranquility and quiet? Or is heaven, like John describes it, a place that's really, really busy? As we've described uh, uh, the throne room of heaven like a control tower. Think of the busiest airport in the world. And God is guiding and directing everything in the world. Well, heaven is a busy place. There's a lot going on in heaven and there's a number of things that I just want to draw to your attention so you can think about it a little bit. The first is simply that John begins in chapter 15 verse 1 by saying, I saw in heaven a great and amazing sign. This is a third time that he has seen a revelation of God in heaven, something bigger than the actual thing that he sees. The first one was in chapter 12, verse 1, where he saw a great sign in heaven, a woman. 
And we talked about that woman and understood that, that that woman is certainly Mary, but that woman is Israel. That woman is the church. It's an it's a incredible picture of the people of God that John saw when he saw the sign of the woman in heaven. The second sign is in verse 3 of chapter 12 where he describes there, I saw a great dragon, a sign, a dragon in heaven. And we've come to understand the, the, the bigness or the vastness, the complexity of that dragon as he's revealed himself as the serpent of old and then as he um, manipulates or manages the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. And so here now we have a sign from heaven, a great and amazing sign. What does he see? Seven angels with seven plagues. These are the bowls of wrath that God is about to pour out on the earth. The thing he sees in heaven as well as these seven angels and he describes their clothing a little bit further down in the passage. They are clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests and seven plagues. Heaven is a busy place. Heaven is a full place. The angels of God are described in so many different ways as occupying and being involved and busy in heaven. Here these angels are dressed in such a way that magnifies their dignity and their power. It re reflects, in a sense, um, uh, sort of a priestly role. Not that angels have priestly role, but it's priestly dress. And it's royal dress that they're wearing. In fact, they, they look almost like the lamb that's described in Revelation chapter 1. Also, John describes in heaven one of the four living creatures. Back in chapter 4, he describes all of the four living creatures from us. And he describes them as being full of eyes in front and back. One of those living creatures looks like a lion, another like an ox, another with the face of a man, another like an eagle flying. We don't really know which one of those four living creatures it is, but he describes one of those four living creatures as giving the seven bowls of wrath to the seven angels. Another connection that I, that I, I think is intended to be made here is the four living uh, um, uh, uh, creatures um, give the seven golden vials of incense to God and the prayers of God's people go up to heaven. And what we've been saying is that the judgments of God are answers to the prayers of God's people. And it's amazing to me that the, there's, there's these seven bowls of incense and then there's seven bowls of wrath. It's like it's God's correlation between the cries of God's people, how long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance on our suffering. But nonetheless, in this heavenly scene, this scene full of activity, there's these angels in pure white lizard. There's these, one of these four living creatures. And then he sees a sea mingled with fire, so to speak. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. I'm not entirely sure what this sea is. I think it's the same sea that's described in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. This great sea of glass that is before the throne of God. I think it's the same sea that's described in the book of Exodus, which I'll refer to in a moment. But I also wonder if it, in some sense it's a, an image or it's a picture of, of God's sovereign reign over the sea of humanity. We've talked about the sea as, as sometimes being a reference for, for, for humanity, for all the peoples of the earth. The sea is also sometimes described with the image of chaos or evil or turbulence. 
And so when we see this great sea before the throne of God, it is crystal clear. It is perfectly calm. It's like glass. And that for me is a, a way of understanding or seeing God's sovereign rule over this universe and humanity. And it's perfect. There's not a ripple in the water. There's not a thing out of sight. There's not a thing that's hidden. It's clear as crystal. And it's an incredible scene, I think, of what's going on in heaven. So from the perspective of heaven... As God looks down on this earth, it is calm. It is clear. Everything is according to God's perfect will and his perfect plan. What a contrast is the perspective of heaven when you have the perspective of earth. It is like there's a storm going on all the time. How, long, how often does the world that we live in appear to be a raging sea? How often does it seem like the people around us are full of chaos and evil? As Isaiah says, the nations are like a troubled sea. When we see this, what, what do we feel? We, we, we feel sort of unease. And I think that this is John's way of saying, well, look up to heaven. Look up to heaven and see from heaven's perspective the throne and before it this incredible sea. And it could be the sea of humanity. It's perfectly calm and it's clear. God sees all, God knows all, and everything's under God's control. There's this image that I have in my mind also back from the book of Exodus where Moses takes some of the leaders of the people up onto the mountain and they're, they're going to have dinner with God. It's an incredible description of, of fellowship with God. And I, 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 every time I read that passage in Exodus, I, I try and figure it out and I can't figure it out. But it describes there that when they look up, the, what they see is the, this sea which is blue like sapphire. And just in my own thinking, I was thinking, well, from heaven's perspective, it's clear as crystal. Calm, like glass. And from Earth's perspective, when our life is a mess, when our world is chaotic around us, when it seems like evil is, is winning, look up and see this sapphire blue sky and think of it as the bottom of this crystal sea of which God is sovereign and in control over and everything is calm and everything is known by God. It's an incredible vision, I think, of heaven that God has given us through John for the people to just have some sense of calm and some sense of peace and some sense of understanding that we ought not to be afraid because God is in control. Around this sea of glass, we're also still in heaven again. Remember, around this sea of glass are those who had come victorious, those who had conquered who had they conquered? Where well, they had conquered the beast. They hadn't worshipped the beast. They hadn't worshipped the idol. They hadn't taken the mark of the beast on their, uh, uh, on their name or the number of his name. And so these are the victorious ones, the 144,000. The whole church from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person that will ever be martyred. All of the church is gathered around standing by this pure, crystal, calm sea. It's an incredible picture of the redeemed of God standing beside the throne of God in this particular sea. Some of those people had experienced a brutal time here on earth. Some of them had come out of tribulation. Some of them had come out of all manner of suffering and of persecution and affliction because they had chosen to obey the commands of God. They had chosen to stay true to the testimony of Christ. They had chosen to endure they lost their physical life, but they gained eternal life, and now they're gathered around this incredible sea. These are those, as Pastor Barry reminded us last week, have refused to be envious of the wicked and the temporal rest that the wicked have this side of eternity. 
As I mentioned, there are those who have refused to follow the beast and to worship the dragon. They refuse to sell out for temporal gain. That's the pressure, isn't it, that we feel day in and day out as we live in this world. Ah, it's not a big deal. Ah, don't worry about it. Ah, nobody will ever know about it. They'll never find out about it. Oh, God doesn't care about it. No, the people of God stay true to the commands of God and hold fast to the testimony of God. And it might look like we lose temporarily, but we gain eternally. And that's the group of people that is standing around this throne. So loved ones, when you're in tough this week, when you feel like you're at war and the war is being waged against you, when it seems like your life is chaotic or the world in which you live is chaotic, think about this vision of heaven. Think about the sovereign control of God. Think about the utter peace and the utter calm and the, uh, calm and the clarity that God has with which he sees this world and governs and guides this world. And know that one day as you are a conquering one, a victorious one, you will stand beside this sea of glass and join in this great song of praise. I want to say a little bit more about the smoke that's in heaven. There's good smoke and there's bad smoke. And both of those are in heaven. You know, we're, we're familiar with smoke right now, aren't we? I got up this morning and I drove here and the, the sun was already orange and you could hardly, well, you could, uh, probably stupid, but you could look at it. It doesn't seem bright because it's all covered by the smoke, but you can smell the smoke. Well, there's a sense in which heaven is full of smoke. We'll talk about that in a second. I want to talk about some of the sounds in heaven. Talk about some of the sights. The smells is the smoke. Sounds of heaven. There's this incredible song that erupts in heaven. This heavenly choir that, that John describes. We already know some of the sounds, don't we, from chapter 4 and chapter 5 as the angels and the 24 elders and, and all the redeemed sing, Worthy, worthy are you uh, who was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, here we have another choir and a song as the people sing the song of Moses. There it is, the connection with the Old Testament and the song of the Lamb. I think this is um, John's way of describing the great redemptive salvific work of God on behalf of his people. And in the Old Testament, this act of God's deliverance and salvation was an incredible act. And I was trying to imagine in my mind's eye what it would have been like to have been the people of Israel. And, and, and the night before, they had just slaughtered the, the Passover lamb and they had taken the blood and they had dripped it over their lamb, uh, over their lintels and their doorposts. And the angel of death had passed through Egypt and the land of Goshen. And anyone who didn't have blood, their firstborn was killed. And there was wailing and there was mourning, but there was none of that in the houses of the people of God. And then they crossed through the Red Sea as it was parted on dry ground. But they were afraid because the army was coming after them and God stopped the army until they got through. And then they get through on dry land. They get to the other side and as the army is in the middle of the water, God holds or lets the wind go and the water covers up the Egyptian army and they all die. What could you imagine is going through the people's mind as they stand on the shore of the Red Sea? Rejoicing? celebration what a deliverance what salvation and they they sing Moses takes him in a song there's a song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 there's a song of Moses in Exodus chapter 32 I don't know which song it is it could be both songs or neither a song but they sing with great joy about the salvation and deliverance of God don't you think that is going to be magnified when the great host of the redeemed sing about the redemption and the exodus that has been accomplished for them by Christ Jesus. As he has brought us from death to life. 
as he has brought us from darkness to light, as he has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, or Satan into the kingdom of God, how he says he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Is that not a reason to sing? Is that not a reason to be joyful? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> wow, like, this is, this is what John is describing. There's this, 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 we will get it. I know we sometimes get it a little bit here. Beloved ones, I, I don't know if we actually know what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And when we get it, we erupt in praise and celebration and joy and thanksgiving to God. What I hope we get as we think about this particular section of Scripture, we think about heaven. Because we're not there yet. We're down here. But let the vision of heaven that John is describing inform and influence your life here on earth today. Anticipate it. Prepare for it. Look forward to it. Find confidence in it. Find hope in it. Find encouragement in it. Find it to be the strength of your perseverance as you face trials and temptations during the week. Heaven is an amazing place. And there's a lot going on there. The sanctuary in heaven. John says, after this I looked in the sanctuary of the uh, uh, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open I think it's a reference to the holy of holies the tent of witness you might recall that the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in in um, Israel were exact replicas of the tabernacle in heaven I don't fully understand it all but exact replicas of that and tabernacle and the temple were places where God's presence dwelt there were praises out of which God's mercy flowed. It was a place out of which God's judgment was delivered. It was a place that reminded the people of the provision of God as the manna was stored in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant. As I said, it's a place of mercy because on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And so it's out of this particular place, this place in heaven, the real temple out of which God speaks. Notice it's out of the sanctuary that the seven angels come. I think it's important to think about that because what are these seven angels bringing? They're bringing the wrath of God that will be finished on mankind. It's helpful for us to realize that wrath is not random. That wrath is not sort of a spontaneous combustion that happens in the world in which we live. That wrath is not in, in, in some leader's hand or some nutjob's hand. Wrath comes from the very presence of God. And God is the one that determines what will happen and take place here on earth. It comes out of his holy presence, his perfect righteousness and judgment. Out of the tabernacle, out of the tent of witness, come the seven angels with the seven bowls. Notice again at the very end, it says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God in chapter 8. There's smoke. There's good smoke. There's some good smoke. Uh, we'll come back to this in a sec. There's some bad smoke in heaven, but it's always going to be there. And it was smoke that's described in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. After the, the, the judgment of uh, the people on earth, and it's describing the eternal torment of those who worship the beast and followed the beast and took the mark of the beast. It says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. So in heaven there is the smoke of the torment of the ungodly. Can't wrap my head around it. But it's there. It's the, there's a smell. There's a sight. There's also the smoke of the incense of God's people. 
as it goes up into the presence of God. And then there's this smoke that, that represents the glory of God. I don't fully understand this, but there's a sense in which when God is present, there's smoke. It's described in the book of Exodus. Um, when, the, when the tabernacle was dedicated by Moses, it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of God filled it. It's described in, in uh, Revel Exodus 19.18 and Mount Sinai as God came down on Mount Sinai and it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. I still can't remember what they're called, mills, I think. They're mills where you drive all through the province and sometimes up in the interior they've got these, um, these, these mills with these great kilns and if you happen to drive by with those kilns, there's just smoke billowing out of them. And this is the description of Mount Sinai when God descends on it. Smoke comes out of it like a kiln. Isaiah chapter 6 describes the glory of God, the throne room of God. His train fills the temple. And Isaiah says, and the house was filled with smoke. It's an ind indication of the presence of God. And twice, and I started to refer to this, of the dedication of the tabernacle and the dedication of the temple. To remember that it says that they could not enter into the tabernacle or the tent because of the presence of God. And there's something of a restriction here in the tabernacle where it says there in, in verse, um, uh, verse 8, it says, And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. There's something going on there. There's something, I think, being said about the holiness of God. There's something being said about the judgment of God. There's something being said about the fact that God's will now has been determined and there's no changing it. Do you remember when the people of Israel were, 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 were about in the wilderness and, and um, God called Moses up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments? And he went up uh, to the mountain and when he was up there, the people thought he was died. And so they, they started, they made a golden calf and they started engaging in sexual immorality and all that kind of stuff. And um, God said, you better go back because these people have gone crazy. And so Moses goes back and he breaks the Ten Commandments and, and, and there's all kinds of trouble. And he goes back up to heaven. And why does he go back up? Sorry, he goes back up. Why does he go back up the mountain? He goes back up the mountain to intercede for the people of God. He goes to where God is to pray that God would somehow hold back his hand. Well, I think what John is saying here is there is no holding back the hand of God anymore. The judgment of God has been determined and it has been set. And there will be no access to the tabernacle until the full cup of the wrath of God has been spent. The sanctuary in heaven from which God rules and reigns. The third thing that you mention or that you see in this text is it tells us a little bit about the God of heaven. I probably should have started here, um, but maybe not. Because uh, there's some tough things said about God here, but there's some good things said about God in this text as well. Again, I, I think Pastor Barry encouraged us last week, and I'll encourage the same thing this week. Where do you get your information about God from? Do you get it from your own imagination? Do you get it from your own sinful heart that would like God to be like this, or like God to be like that, or hope God isn't like this? Or do you get your information about God from the Bible? And if you get your information of God from the Bible, then are you reading the Bible? Because everywhere... In the Bible, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, God reveals himself to us. 
and it shapes us and it forms our thinking. The first thing that I just want to draw your attention to, and I may say more about this next week, and I don't even know about how much to say about it this week, but it's simply the wrath of God. 15.1, it says that these seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. If you own a copy of the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I encourage you to read his chapter on the wrath of God. There's many places that you could go, but J.I. Packer is a good thinker. He's a clear thinker. He's a biblical thinker. The wrath of God is not popular. It's not popular in the church. It's not popular in our world. And there's many Christians that don't ever want to talk about the wrath of God. But John is very careful to point out a number of times in Revelation, certainly in chapter 15 and 16, about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a biblical reality. There's more said about the wrath and the judgment of God than there is in the tenderness and love of God in the Bible. You never know that, though, from the way that we preach and the way that we talk and the way that we think about God. We need to think about the wrath of God. First of all, I think verse 1 is good news. It's good news because one day the wrath of God is going to be finished. No more. Done with. Complete. Finished. I think that's great news. It says a little bit later that the full cup of the wrath of God will be drained. It's good news. I think sometimes we have trouble with the wrath of God, though, because we think about it through the lens of our own lives. When we think about it through the lens of our own lives, we say, how utterly unworthy is that of God? And so when we think about the wrath of God in light of our own lives, we think about our short tempers, or we think about the short temper of our mother or our father or our spouse. We think about the loss of self-control when one's driving down the road. We think about somebody with a short fuse. We think about somebody, we say, flying off the handle or flying into a rage. And we think, God's not like that, so there's no such thing as a wrathful God. That's the wrong way to think about God's wrath, though. God does not fly off the handle. God does not have a short fuse. God does not have a short temper. God's wrath is not irrational. God's wrath is his holy reaction to evil. God's wrath is his resolute action in punishing sin. You can only understand the wrath of God with the backdrop of the sin of humanity. Without the sin of humanity, there is no wrath of God. Without the wrath of God, there is no forgiveness. Without the wrath of God, there is no grace. And so it's incumbent upon us as God's people to work through what the Bible tells us about the wrath of God. As I said, grace only makes sense against this backdrop. I think we need to understand, too, that the wrath of God is not only a future reality. I think sometimes when we read the book of Revelation, people have this notion that the wrath of God is only something that's going to happen at the end of the, end, end of the last days. But, loved ones, the wrath of God is something that has been, uh, the world has experienced since its creation, since, or since the fall. We certainly see the wrath of God evidenced in the flood, do we not, as God punishes sin and evil. We see the wrath of God poured out again and again on sinful humanity as different accounts in the Bible describe God's way with humanity and mankind. We find in Revelation or Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. It's revealed in our day and in our time. We presently see the wrath of God at work. How? Well, Revelation, Romans chapter 1 describes the fact that, that when, when people refuse to worship the creator and rather worship the created things, if they continue in that and they persist in that, then God removes his hand from them. 
He gives them over to a depraved mind. He gives them over to depraved thinking. He gives them over to even greater sinfulness. That in itself is an expression of the wrath of God as he lets people turn in on themselves. The wrath of God is both a temporal reality and a future reality. The Bible actually describes all of us outside of Christ as, by nature, children of wrath. Because God is holy, he has to judge sin. Because God is righteous, he has to punish unrighteousness. I think the wonderful thing is, though, that you don't have to receive the wrath of God. People choose the wrath of God by their actions. The Bible is very, very clear, though, that for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, the wrath of God that would have been poured out on them is averted onto Christ. This is the amazing thing about the Bible. It's the amazing thing about salvation. This is a thing that we, we, that we have to wrap our heads around. Is that in the plan of God, God didn't just take his offense and his wrath towards sin and just say, well, I'm just going to sweep it under the table. I'm just going to pretend that it never happened. I'm just going to kind of turn the other way and go, you know, la, 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 I can't hear anything. No, God still has to punish sin because he's righteous and just. What he does is he punishes our sin in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means when Christ says, I'll drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. You see, you can avoid or you can escape the wrath of God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and you can receive the love of God as Christ takes your place. You don't have to receive the wrath of God, but God is a wrathful God. Second thing we see about this text is God is a holy God. Verses 2 to 4 is worth your meditating on. It's worth your thinking about. The song of the redeemed as they gather around this sea of glass, as they sing to the Lord this incredible song. They sing about the perfections of God. You, you, might, you, you might notice, and I encourage you to do this, as you read through this song from the middle of verse 3 to the end of verse 4, it's declaring the perfections of God. It's all about God and who he is and about his ways. And it's, it's full of Old Testament references. I've got six of them here, but I probably could have added another six of just places all over the Old Testament from, from the Pentateuch to Psalms to the prophets of descriptions of the character of God that John grabs and he pulls them in like a collage into this song. Deuteronomy 28, great and glorious and awesome is your name. Deuteronomy 32, righteous and true are your ways. Jeremiah 10:7, king of the nations, who will not fear and glorify your name. Psalm 86, 9, all the nations will come and worship before you. Psalm 98 too, your righteous acts have been revealed. And on and on and on, the Old Testament points us to our worship and informs our worship. Do you know, there are those who say we don't need the Old Testament. There are those that are saying we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. What a loss. What a loss to our faith. What a loss to our view of God. What a loss to our worship if we cut off the Old Testament from our vocabulary. Notice that it's all about God. This is what I love about how our worship is growing and developing this church. You know, there's a lot of songs in the church even that are about me. What I want, what I need, what I hope for. I get tired of those songs personally. What I love is songs that point me to God. What I love is songs that point me to Christ. What I love, me, love is songs of worship that describe the great and awesome deeds of God that glorify and magnify his name. Those are the kinds of songs that we need to sing. 
It's the kind of song that we see described here. What's our confession? It says, great and awesome are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Initially, he's talking about the wrath of God. That's what's being described in Revelation 15 and 16. And so they, they sing. It's not a repulsion to the wrath of God. See, this is something that should inform us, loved ones. When we have the view of heaven, when we get to heaven, we won't be repulsed by God. We won't be questioning God. We won't say, well, God, why did you do this? We will understand the, the perfectness of God in his ways. And we will say, great and awesome are your deeds, O Lord. And we will say, holy and just and righteous are your ways, O God. Do you already think that way in your life today, loved ones? I don't know what the circumstances of your life are. I, 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 I don't know how many people I talked to this week. Some are really going through tough stuff. Some in the hospitals, some in relationships, some with challenges in their life. And it'd be very easy for all of them to say, God, you don't care. God, you don't know what you're doing. God, why are you allowing this in my life? But we need to have the perspective of heaven now, which tells us to say, by faith, great and just and righteous are your ways, O God. I might not understand them. I might not see where you're leading, but I trust you, God, O sovereign, righteous, perfect, holy one. That's their confession. And their response is, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's like, kind of like, duh. You know, when you, when you think about the greatness of God and the awesomeness of God and the power of God and the majesty of God and the might of God and the glory of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the incomprehensible nature of God, it's almost like, well, who wouldn't worship you? Who wouldn't glorify your name? Is that how we think about God, loved ones? Or is it a struggle for us as we gather to, to kind of muster up enough energy to sing and to worship God? Or as we're filled with visions of his glory and might and his perfection, it's obvious that the only response is one of worship and glory and magnification of his name. And notice what they say. You alone are holy. I think the, I think the holiness of God needs to be looked at a couple ways. There's a holiness of God that is a reflection of his character. And he's perfect. He's pure. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. But there's a holiness of God which is also reflected in the ways of God. And so we, the, with the, when they say righteous and true are your ways, that's a way of saying holy are you, O God. And it's something that I think as people of God, we need to again learn this side of heaven. It will help us greatly to as we walk through life, as we see what God's doing. We might not understand it. It might not make sense to us. But every time something happens in our life, we say, but holy are you, O God. Let me give you an instance of that. Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, one of the psalms that was going through his mind was Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt that God has left you alone? Have you ever felt that things are unfair in your life? It's okay to express that. It's okay to momentarily have a reflection of that in your heart and mind. That's normal. We all do that. But you need to move to the next step. And the next step is verse 3 of Psalm 22 where Jesus or the psalmist says, But you are holy, O Lord. I don't get what's going on. I don't like what's going on. It's tough in my life. It doesn't make sense. But holy are you, O Lord. Your ways are just and right and perfect. 
You're good in all that you do. Holy are you, O Lord. Loved ones, you come to a chapter like chapter 15. It's a chapter that looks at the future. Allow the future to influence your present. Allow the future to somehow fill your present day this week with great um, thoughts about heaven, with great thoughts about God, with right thoughts about God. God's control, God's power, God's might, God's character, God's way, God's holiness. Let that inform the way that you deal with the stuff that you face this week. And I'm sure one of the things that you will say if you come back here next Sunday is great and awesome are your deeds, O God, who will not glorify your name. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.